Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And uh, today we are continuing on with our uh, journey in films that we missed in uh, 2021. You know, it was, as I mentioned, I think on the last episode, there were lots of reasons that we didn't get around to certain movies. Um, You know, time uh, access, all kinds of things. I mean, October, we were slammed. Um, so if a movie came out in October, odds are, you know, we just didn't see it. We were, we were balls deep in, in slasher films. So, um, yeah, we thought that it would be a good way to continue it on. Um, and, and especially with award season kind of cranking up, you know, the Golden Globe winners just happened, the SAG nominations just came out. The BAFTA nominations just came out. Um, the Producers Guild Awards, I think, just actually got backed up. Um, so it's award season time, and it seemed like a good time to kind of get caught up on a lot of 2021 movies, especially a lot of the ones that are award season contenders. Um, dear, do you, do you put much stock in award seasons, or do you put... Um, faith in any particular awards over others? Honestly, just listening to you talk about how many awards happen, like, I I, I think I was very vastly, um, I had no idea how many <laughs> actually went on. Like, I was, I was going to ask you when you were done, like, how many awards actually happen? Because, like, it just seemed like everybody and their mama, like, got themselves an award season. Next thing you know, it's going to be like, and the Paul award season and Lawrence award season. You know, it it seems like literally anybody can can have awards, you know? Like, why? <laughs> no, that's fair. So, generally speaking, the big ones that kind of happen in... Um, a U.S. context that are also typically considered like the the sort of precursors to um, the Oscars that are big predictors of the Oscars are the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Writers Guild Awards, uh, the Directors Guild Awards. Um, there probably is some, I would imagine, uh, use in the... Uh, the Producers Guild Award, of course, as well. But I imagine there's also some use in the Critics' Choice Awards that occur as well. Um, the BAFTAs, I don't think, really have quite as much of a lead-up. But then, you know, the big, the big, you know, award ceremony is the Academy Awards. Um, but usually all of those other ones are kind of used as predictors and metrics for how the Academies are going to go. And and what exactly are the Academy Awards? Is that does that include the Oscars or is yeah, the Oscars? Yeah, that's the Oscars. So that's just another name for the Oscars. Yeah, they are called the Oscars because of the trophy. They are the Academy of Arts and Science Awards. Yeah, the Academy Awards. Arts and Science. Yeah. That, I'm 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 about to go down a whole <laughs> different rabbit hole. Um, so I digress. That's why they have, like, the technical awards where they celebrate the, like, um, the scientific and technical prowess of different advancements in film. But they do that on a separate night from the Oscars telecast. Boo. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so, um, dear listener, 
I apparently had no stock in any of these games. Um, I really, truly only know that the, the, the Oscars happened, and I really didn't know that there were any of these other things. The Oscars and the Tonys, and that's where I live my life. Um, and I've never actually seen an Oscars um, ever in my life on TV or recorded or otherwise. I used to watch the Tonys quite a lot when I actually had cable, um, but that was many moons ago. And yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm just kind of overwhelmed by all of the information I feel like that is just just known but not. Well, you know, it's it's only really useful to like industry people. If you know, if I'm being completely frank, and that's also why like the SAGs don't get broadcast on one of the major networks. The Globes and the Oscars do. Um I don't think the DGAs or the WGAs like get a telecast. Um, I'm not sure that the SAGs will get one this year, I don't know. Um, but they sometimes get more coverage just because it's a very actor-centric, you know, actor-forward event. These people make millions of dollars already, and then you get to put them on, like, 15 different awards TV shows. This is absolutely outrageous. Yeah. Um, so, I guess I don't necessarily put much stock in any of them um because a lot of them are you know popularity races and dog and pony shows and there's there's all sorts of historical um cases of these things being swayed particular sorts of ways we'll talk more about that next month when we do our our history of the academy awards um but i always think that it is a good chance to look at some films of the year that are both considered critically acclaimed but also have a certain amount of you know, general popularity, I'm sure that a lot of the films that probably should be nominated just lack a lot of mass appeal. Um, so I don't necessarily put much stake in them. Um, and as, as a great example of that, you know, House of Gucci is getting nominated a lot, but one of the two films that uh, we're talking about today, The Last Duel, has so far gone completely unnoticed. And I haven't seen House of Gucci, so I can't comment or speculate overly much. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't put a lot of stake in the awards because based on, on the trusted opinions that I have of people who have seen House of Gucci and having just seen The Last Duel, I have my own particular opinions on, on, uh, on how that nomination sort of process is playing out. I mean, honestly, now knowing more after listening to you talk about this, it really, is just not something for me, I think. I It feels like something that's just, like, here to inflate egos and not actually bare bones an evaluation of whether or not a film is good, that actors are good at their jobs, and that technical people are, like, putting in the work. Like, it just feels like, you know, if you wet my whistle enough, and then I'll vote for your thing. Like, there's just too many films that come out in a year for any of these old farts to actually have the time to watch all of them. So it really is a, you know, if you pay me enough, then my vote will be yours. It almost feels like how we do presidency. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a very complicated process and we can talk more about that again next month. Um, mm, complicated. But uh, this, this, episode as i mentioned we're talking about the last duel 
Um, but on top of that, we are also talking about uh, Paul Verhoeven's new film, Benedetta. And you know me, I like to try and group things and tie them together with themes and such. And so last week's episode was all about sort of, you know, simulated worlds presented on film with The Matrix, Resurrections, and Free Guy. This week I wanted to look at how, um, I think two directors, both of which could probably be considered an auteurs of their own, um, Ridley Scott and Paul Verhoeven, handle historical time period, um, especially much older historical time period, because with The Last Duel, Ridley Scott was tackling the 14th century, and with uh, Benedetta, I believe that Paul Verhoeven, um, who directed, you know, Showgirls and Robocop, uh, handles, I believe, the 16th century. Um, And I wanted to see how they handle it, because, you know, they're very different. Ridley Scott is very much, you know, if you look at some of his films, of, of real historian, whereas Paul Verhoeven um, is a satirist who does all kinds of, of wild um, and very in-your-face depictions of all sorts of stuff. You know, Showgirls is not a subtle movie. Um, so I thought that it would be interesting to see how two different, very different filmmakers tackle um, sort of complex sociopolitical elements from very long ago uh, time periods. Beautifully done. Um, so I guess without further ado, I decided that we would tackle them chronologically. Um, and so if you're ready, dear, would you like to, to go ahead and get started? Sure. Yeah, we can, we can definitely get started. Okay. Um, then I guess without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into Ridley Scott's The Last Duel and say it with me. As always, we have a clip, so take a listen. There is only one question that matters. Do you swear on your life that what you say is true? My father told me my life would be blessed with good fortune. I'm married. I was a good wife. So that was The Last Duel. It came out in 2021, uh, and it is directed by Ridley Scott. It is written uh, by Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Nicole Holofcener. Um... And it stars Matt Damon, Adam Driver, uh, Jodie Comer, who was also in Free Guy, uh, and Ben Affleck. And the premise is King Charles VI declares that Knight Jean de Carroge settle his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel. Um, Before we get too into the movie itself... Um, brief history lesson brought to you by me. Um, so this is based on a true event that happened in 1386, sort of smack dab in the middle of the, um, well, not right in the middle, um, but it takes place during the Hundred Years' War between, um, France and Britain. 
and uh, Jean de Carouge was a soldier by trade, essentially. He was a warrior, um, and he, you know, had land and, and, you know, people underneath him and that sort of thing. And he served a liege lord alongside another man, uh, Jacques Legree. And Jean, Carouge, Jean de Carouge and uh, Jacques Legree were close friends. They had been on the battlefield together. Legree had been um, a godfather to one of Carouge's uh, children, who ended up dying uh, young. And the the whole thing centers around this sort of friendship that turns sour and ultimately, you know, content warning of, about violence moving ahead. Ultimately, what ends up sort of boiling over uh, is that Marguerite de Carouge, uh, Jean's wife, ends up accusing Jacques Legree of rape. And um, Carouge was not particularly well-liked. He was a little bit of a pig-headed, stubborn man um, with a short fuse. Uh, who didn't make a lot of friends. Legree was uh, literate and was very capable of making friends and managed to get in good with their liege lord, uh, Pierre Dalcon. And um, he ended up getting a lot of things gifted to him and rising up through the ranks, and it caused a lot of um, kerfuffle because it ended up leading to several lawsuits that Jean de Carouge uh, filed. And so it led to this trial by combat, which is the whole, you know, thrust of the film. Um, and um, it was not technically the last duel. There was one that is not officially recognized as the last duel that occurred in 1547. But uh, judicial combat, as it was referred to, was a pretty outdated practice by this point historically. Um and so that's a little bit of the background. You know, we'll talk more about the plot as we move forward. Um, Dear, what did you think of The Last Duel? I really enjoyed it. Um, the way that the movie is set up is you get three different perspectives of the events as they're told. And you kind of, like, move from one person to the next and, like get to replay certain events, but through that person's particular perspective of the events. And I found that to be a really interesting way of telling the story. Um, and really interesting to see how these characters not only see themselves in their own perspective, but how they see each other. Um, and I just honestly, I thought that the the movie was really well done. I thought that the casting was phenomenal. I thought that the actors, you know, really played their parts well in each of these different perspectives. Um, and it was just a really interesting kind of like who done it story, like who's telling the truth and and why you think that. And like at the end, I I do also side with like the verdict itself, even though I think that the ways that they got there is absolutely ridiculous and barbaric but um no I think that the the movie itself is just like a really interesting um historical movie that is like I guess probably a little like historical fiction be just because of the fact that we don't really know exactly 
how, you know, these people technically lived their lives every day and, like, what they actually said to each other, yada yada, etc. But I'd say that it's pretty accurate, honestly, from, from what we've learned of the history itself. So, I really enjoyed it. No, I think that's fair. I think that there there obviously has to be some creative license, you know. Um, the only reason we have such a detailed account, for example, of the trial itself is because um, the trial that happened before the judicial combat is because Jean Lecoq, um, Legree's lawyer, was a fastidious note-taker, right? So we're dealing with a time, and with one of our characters being openly illiterate, um, we're dealing with a time where we don't have a lot of documents, you know, a lot of, we know the events, but we don't know, to your point, what was said moment to moment, what they talked about from moment to moment. So there is that bit of creative license that you have to, you know, have to explain how A led to B, led to C, led to D. Um, I, I agree with you. I really quite like this movie. Um, Ridley Scott is no stranger to history. And actually, he started out, um, one of his big first films was The Duelists, which took place in 1801, um, about the duel between uh, Lieutenant de Hubert and Lieutenant uh, Farod. Um, and so he period pieces have always kind of been his bag and, and war and, and these kinds of things. He's got the duelists. Um, he has, um, of course, Gladiator, um, Kingdom of Heaven, uh, even Robin Hood. So he's always loved big historical epic kind of things. And actually, as a fun fact for you listeners, he was working on a version of Tristan and Isolde when Star Wars came out and completely changed the game, and he threw everything that he had started on with that movie in the bin and started working on a sci-fi film, and that's what led us to Alien. So he, this has always been something very near and dear to him, is this time period. Um, and I think that this movie absolutely did a phenomenal job. Um, I think that... Um, to your point, I think the casting is really tremendous. He's an interesting director in the sense that, um, you know, he doesn't worry much about accent work. He's not too fastidious about that, but he is very fastidious about the details. Um, and all of his films like this have always been very detail rich. And so I also think that it's interesting to take such a detail centric and focused director and have him do three varied perspectives on the same event. Um, and to your point, yeah, I think that there are very interesting, subtle, not just even acting choices, but editorial choices um, in how an editor holds or cuts a moment depending on who it is that's, that's the perspective figure of that chapter. Yeah, and honestly, um, I'm sure that somebody would say that this movie is slow, but I I really enjoyed it. Um, as, as somebody who spent their life studying theater, it really reminds me of a play, just more more dynamic in the in what you can do with it, and being able to to notice all of those subtle and some not so subtle differences between the perspectives really does 
change how you feel about these people from the beginning to the end. And I think that that is something that's very um, fun to play with and, and interesting to, to watch as a viewer. And honestly, I would I would watch this movie again in a heartbeat. No, yeah, like, it moves incredibly well. Um, first off, I, I also want to commend the film for not showing the duel multiple times. Um, and I can talk more about why I think it's important when they showed the duel. So we start out with a tease of it. And then we move into um, Jean de Carroge's perspective. And he depicts himself, you know, probably as he would want to be depicted. Good warrior, provider, husband, son, done wrong by the powers that be because they look down on him, you know? Um, but then the movie is smart to take certain scenes that we know how it played out and only using a few bits of another person's perspective and moving on instead of replaying out every single scene deliberately. And you also get, on top of the repetitions of scenes, you also get new scenes intercut that change the perspective on a scene that you had before or on a story beat that you had from the from the one before. Well, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like when I would do shows, um, in order to keep your stage directions, um, you know, in your head, I would always like keep like a little note card with me of where I needed to be at what time doing what for, for what number or what scene. And I feel like that's kind of how this is played out because not everybody is together the whole time, but time is still passing in, you know, the way that time passes, you know, it, it starts and then it goes and then it, it gets to the end. And so I think that it's really, to your point, really smart to not just replay every event 100%, but to give us those little differences of the scenes that we've already seen and then jump to this next part for this character specifically of their story. And I think that that's really wise and it's it's really interesting to see different relationships grow or change because of that. No, absolutely. Um, and I think, I think the reason it's also smart to, they, they hold the last duel, the duel itself, for Marguerite's perspective chapter. And I think that that gives a certain amount of benefit because we're watching these people fight and the stakes are high for the men in combat, but the stakes are higher for her, you know, because if her husband dies, she also dies. Um, and I think that Ridley holds the duel for her perspective to sort of embed for the audience that hers is the truth. Because also if we showed the duel from the two perspectives before we got to her perspective, there would have been that, well, you know, how truthful were the events of the duel kind of thing. And, you know, it would have, you know, the the Jean chapter would have valorized Jean, and the Legree chapter would have made him seem like a, an innocent man, quote-unquote, you know, being um, unfairly murdered 
in this unfair event. Spoiler alert. It's history. Whatever. Fuck it. Um, if you don't know the history, I don't know. I can't spoil history. Okay? Um, so... <laughs> I think that by then placing it in her perspective and only giving it one perspective where really neither of them look particularly good to the audience member at this point, um, we, we embed her story as the truth of events. And also only seeing the duel once and at the end then doesn't water it down yeah. for us because if we saw it in each of these three perspectives by the third time by the last time we got to it it would just seem tedious and you wouldn't really be you know impressed or you know really attentive to the details of it as they're happening because you've already seen it twice before you know you're gonna be busy looking off and see what the the extras are doing you know and and all of that jazz and stuff instead of paying attention to the to the duel itself and the severity of the scene because also by this point you know this is the first time that we're hearing her her consequence in this situation you know, we've we've heard um, from from the two men that, oh, they're going to duel to the death and one of them is going to die. But until we get to her perspective, we don't know what her fate is to be. And so we're learning this news as she learns it and the severity of what happens to her if things go wrong. And I think that that really lands very well and very strongly because honestly to your point she does have the worst consequence yeah they do have to fight to the death but she's gonna get like burned alive while pregnant yeah well no she had already had the the child oh at this that's point. true that's true so they would be leaving their child an orphan and she was gonna be burned like a witch you know for for lying basically and up on a much taller pyre and and at one point one of the guys looks at her and is like you know it can take up to 20 minutes so, like, you know, death, depending on what blow strikes these gentlemen, can be very swift and quick. And, like, honestly, the duel itself probably only lasts, I don't know, 10 minutes, maybe. Whereas, like, yeah, 30 minutes of burning to death sounds like agony. Yeah, and so, you know, we really put the stakes and what's at stake in perspective, um... And it grounds everything, I think, that Marguerite is our most reliable narrator. You know, and films and television uh, and novels have always played around with how much can you trust the person telling your story? How reliable is your narrator? And so in, um, in, in something like um, Fight Club... So much of our narrator is unreliable for so much of it because he doesn't realize that he is Tyler Durden. Um, or, you know, uh, with... I'm trying to think of another good example of an unreliable narrator. My brain wants to pull something with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Oh, um, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, to a certain degree, is an unreliable narrator, um, because how truthful is he really being about himself, you know, and about how, how good or bad he was or wasn't, um, 
so we always have these, we've had a lot of narratives where we have to um, question the reliability of the narrator. The, the surprise reveal at the end of The Usual Suspects, where suddenly you don't know how much of the story that you've just heard is true because of who was telling it. Oh, oh, that other movie with um, Leonardo in, in, not Inception, um, the one where he's in the psych ward. Oh, Shutter Island. Yes, I feel like that one is also a great example of an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. because otherwise the, the twist ending wouldn't happen if you saw it coming the whole time. Yeah, and so the first two chapters... You know, when you when you just first see Jean's, it's like, okay, that's the event. Then you see Legree's and some things change, and now you know for a fact that Jean was not telling the truth in everything. So then by the time you get to Marguerite's and we reveal some other sort of elements to both of these men, as she saw them, we now start to realize that both of them were unreliable in the depiction of themselves, you know, or how they are presented in their character-centric chapter. And so I think it's very definitive as well that uh, that Marguerite is meant to be our honest narrator. She is our most reliable narrator. No, yeah, and it's also, you know, going back, um, so fascinating to, to see because, uh, because um, as, a, as a character, as a, as a human being, you don't see yourself the way that others see you. And and you are always going to see, you know, for the most part, hopefully, the best version of yourself. You know, you're going to try and present the best version of yourself through through your personal lens. And, you know, people can take or leave how they feel about how you present yourself. But to you, it should be, you know the most honest version of this. Mm-hmm. And so it also is very interesting to see the slight warping of each perspective as we go through the movie, because again, their their personal view of themselves is always like, I am a good person. Whereas somebody else's pers- you know, view of them is not quite the same. And I just, it's just so interesting. And again, I, I would love to, to rewatch this movie um, because I just, it was so clever in, in a way that like, not all movies are, you know? And it was a little, again, I would say that it, for, for, I guess for, to play a devil's advocate, for someone, this movie could be very slow and, you know, you you get some some battles and some action stuff early on, but for the most part, it's a lot of talking and a lot of paying attention to detail. Yeah. And yeah, if that's you, maybe this movie isn't for you. But like, I really enjoyed it. But I, you know, I also studied Shakespeare, so like, this is it's it it was really interesting for me. Like a who done it. Yeah, it's almost a little bit like, um, on a certain level, I think that it has that same sort of level of knives out of like, okay, the, the mystery's out of the air, so what are we really looking at? We're looking at truth on a certain level, and what is it? And who's telling it? And how is it told? Um, 
and and I think that Ridley has out and out said that Marguerite is telling the truth. But I think that you're right. It is a character study. Are there action beats, especially in a lot of Jean's chapter? Yes. Um, but that also tells to who he is as a character because he's a warrior. So, of course, all of the fighting is in his chapter, you know, yeah. because that is that's his bread and butter. Whereas, like, when we move to um, Legree's chapter, it's it's more of him, like, rising through the ranks and, like, showing off a little bit of, like, you know, how pompous he can be and and his his just general, like, air about him. No, absolutely. Um, no, I think that that's all very fair. Um, I think it's a very intelligently told story. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's glued and cemented by not just a really great script, but by really great character work from everyone in it. Um, it's all very grounded. It's all very, um, it's all very interesting. I was, I was very, very happy with how this film turned out. And honestly, you know, I know that some people might find it slow, but for me, it moved incredibly smoothly. Um, apparently, he has an extended cut of the movie. If anything, that almost makes me apprehensive because I feel like it could potentially be too long. No, yeah, I'm sure that it's probably just more action in, you know, that's that's probably if I had an extended cut and was like, crap, where do I need to cut some stuff? It would probably be of the of the fighting bits because like, sure, fighting is fun and it was interesting to watch, but like also too much can be gratuitous. It can, it, it just takes up time. And is it really at this point helping my narrative any, any further? No, absolutely. Uh, so, dear, if you had to give The Last Duel a rating out of five, what would you give it? Oh, I give this movie a five. All day. No, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I really don't have, you know, for me personally, I really do not have a lot of complaints with this movie. I think it's very smartly done. Um, there is, I guess, always that question of, should you show a... Um, a depiction of something like sexual violence. And I think that this movie, because that act is so central to the narrative, it has to be shown, but I think that it does a good job of not making it shock value. And I think that they do a good job of making it have consequences in the narrative. And I think that it's very important, um, you know, I don't think that anything should be off limits to a story, but if you're going to put it in there, it has to have value, it has to have merit, it has to have a reason to be there, more than just to be there. Um, and I understand that that scene could be very triggering or very off-putting to some people, um, but honestly, you know, from my perspective, and, and you can agree or disagree, I think that it lasted as long as it needed to. The moment that you started to really feel, okay, it can end now, you know, um, was was pretty much the moment that it was over. No, yeah, and I think if we didn't have it, you would feel, I think, a little more 
well, I don't know who's telling the truth. Yeah. About the situation. And by seeing it not only from Legree's perspective, but also in Marguerite's perspective, like, details definitely change. And the tonality of the movement changes. It really feels like they shot certain parts of that twice. Oh, completely, completely from, like, you know, her playfully taking off her shoes and his perspective to her, like, tripping up the stairs and her shoes falling off. They, those are very important beats that you need to see. And I think that especially where we are as a society and with, you know, in recent years, the Me Too movement coming out, I think that this movie is invaluable. You know, it is it is absolutely necessary to to see this and to understand what is and is not appropriate. And also, even from his perspective, he is not getting consent in any way, shape or form. And so, you know, for for everyone, I think that this is a very profound and and needed bit of bit of film work that is done I think very respectfully and to your point doesn't last any longer than it needs to but also has the right amount of care in it and the right amount of respect to to those that have been you know victims of sexual assault to understand what it is like to be in that perspective if you have never absolutely and, um, you know, especially, sorry, I, I know that we gave it a, a star rating and we're still talking about it. I think also with the Legree perspective, it speaks to the fragility of, of male pride and male ego, which is at the core of so much of this story. For sure. For sure. Because like, again, yeah, she, like, I think that Marguerite, for all of her, for all of her intelligence and all of the things that she can do, has just, you know, just lives her life with the brand of being a woman. And therefore, that is her only value, you know, to, to Legree, to her husband, you know, everybody looks at her and goes, all right, your job is to be his wife and to get pregnant. You're done here. And I just, I really enjoyed this movie and, and I'm done now. I'm done talking about it. Well, if you're done talking about it, then I guess we can move on. Our next film is Benedetta, and we're actually being joined by friend of the show and my sister, Madeline. Uh, and so we're going to play y'all a little clip, and then we're going to jump into Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. So take a listen. Benedetta! Viens à moi! J'arrive, Seigneur! On ne comprend pas toujours les instruments de Dieu. Prenez-moi Un couvent n'est pas un lieu de charité, cher enfant. Pourquoi tu es là Dieu te parlera dans beaucoup de langues. So that was Benedetta, which was directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, and also written by Paul Verhoeven and David Burke, based on a book, uh, Immodest Acts, by Judith C. Brown. 
and it stars Virginie Efira, Charlotte Rampling, Daphne Patakia, and Lambert Wilson. And the premise is a 17th century nun in Italy suffers from disturbing religious and erotic visions. She is assisted by a companion, and the relationship between the two women develops into a romantic love affair. Um, to give you all a, another little bit of sort of um, historical background, so this is the 17th century, so 1600s. So we're about 300 years after the events of, of The Last Duel. We're also uh, set in Italy for this one. Um, the real-life Benedetta, Benedetta Carlini, um, ended up... She came from a family that, that apparently had a history of, like, possession. Um, and there's not... There's definitely not as much written about her as something like The Last Duel, which is something that a lot more people have touched on and talked about and that sort of thing. Um, and she ended up becoming the mother superior of uh, this group of nuns. And she was not particularly well-liked, apparently. Um, and she started to have these, these visions, and she also apparently had, you know, the marks of the crucifixion show up on her. And the church at large decided that investigation needed to happen. And so it was during this investigation that um, it eventually came forward that she apparently, you know, wounded herself and that she was also involved in this love affair, well, not love affair, but at least a sexual affair with um, Bartolomea uh, and that whenever she would have this sexual encounter with Bartolomea, she claimed that it was uh, the angel, I think, Splendido is like his, or Splendido is like his name. And so she claimed that it was all angelic, right? That this was a continuation of her faith. And so um, in 16, um, let me double check my date. I believe it's 1626. 1625 um, to 1626, she ends up getting found guilty. At that time, lesbianism, or, you know, the, the concept of, of lesbian was not necessarily a word that was passed around. And so she was found guilty of something more akin to, like, sodomy. Uh, and she ended up spending the next several years, about 25 or so, in jail. Um, not jail jail, but like solitary confinement inside of the convent. Um, and she died at the age of 71, and pretty much there's almost no information really about her from that period of time. Um, the, the movie has notably an inspired by, not a based on, uh, title at the beginning. Um, which to me just sort of right off the bat says that they're definitely already taking liberties. But before I get too far into that, uh, we are currently joined by, and I introduced her at the, at the end of the last segment, we're currently joined by Madeline. Hey! And, um, Mad hasn't been on since, I think, the Slasher episode in October. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm, 
wait. No, Tampopa was your last yeah, one. Yeah, in November. Was my, yeah. yeah, November. Um, so Mad, since you're our our guest here today, what did you think of Benedetta? Um, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, incredibly anachronistic body hair, considering everyone was naked. Yeah, that's fair. For a large percentage of that movie. Um, that was, like, the first thing that popped in my head. I was like, they didn't have bikini waxes and nunneries back then. That's not real. Um, you can edit that. <laughs> you can edit that out. Um, I will not. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it was kind of, um, I enjoyed it. It's a lot to take in. I, I feel like it kind of swings wildly from uh, something that feels very serious and more artful to something that's at times kind of pornographic, like softcore porn, if we're being perfectly honest, um, to the kind of campy, like those scenes where she interacts with Jesus, very white man, white robed. Jesus. Perfectly quaffed Incredibly hair. campy to me. Um, I loved it. You, it was like a, a picture full of a whole array of uh, film styles all in one. No, I think that that's totally fair. Uh, dear, what did you think? Man, I'm still trying to figure out this fucking movie. <laughs> I have no idea like what mood I was supposed to be left with after watching this but like a lot of it was just like befuddlement and like this this movie was was very abrasive I think in every direction and I don't really know what her life was like at all I think after watching this I think it was like really dramatic and and interesting at points, but then also very confusing to figure out, like, what perspective we were thinking in or, or living in at any given moment. There were times where we would, like, live in her, like, fantasies, and then they would, like, switch so quickly back into the real world. And, and yes, the, the, the hair was very, very perfect. Um, uh... <laughs> I don't, there were points where I was like, is this supposed to be a comedy? And I just, <laughs> a lot of emotions well, after like, watching this movie. It, it, it went from, in part, something that felt, like, very gritty. and Like, I, I think, for instance, uh, the scene where one of the nuns um, is dying of breast cancer. Mm. And it, it's, like, very intense and sad. And, like, you see her, you know, obviously back at that point in time, they did not have medicine and treatments for cancer. So you see, like, these tumors, and it's, like, very, very intense and, like, very tragic. Um, And then, yeah, again, it's, like, you kind of swing, though, wildly to, like, these sort of... um, And I will say this. I'm going to be honest. It, like, all of the sex scenes between the two women felt, like, so... I could tell this was directed by a man. (laughs) Um, I could tell it was directed by... A man. It felt very like the male gaze version of um, a lesbian relationship. Um, for instance, there's like that one scene which will be seared into my mind for all eternity where she carves the little Virgin Mary idol into a dildo. Um, which like, I'm not religious and I was like, that's that feels sacrilegious, like sacrilegious to me. That feels, wow, wrong. Um, <laughs> and like that whole that whole entire scene... And, um, 
Yeah, she just kind of was like, bloop, and there you go. And like, no foreplay, nothing. And then orgasmed in five seconds. And I was like, this is a man. (laughs) (laughs) A man directed this movie. That's not real. Oh. Um, so, yeah. So it was kind of like, I wasn't entirely certain. Sometimes I agree. Um, what I was supposed to take away from it necessarily. And, yeah. I, and again, you, PJ, you spoke about the fact that there's not uh, a lot written about her. I don't know if this film educated me further on who I think she was as a woman. This felt very much like one man's very sort of hyper-stylized interpretation of what he thought she might have been. Um, And again, I think while that is interesting, it has certain flaws in and of itself. And yeah, I don't know if I, I feel like I knew her or understand like where she was coming from more even after watching it. And I don't know too if that's a disconnect because I'm not a super religious, like I'm not a, I'm not a religious person. Um, aside from the fact that I was like, I think she was definitely, uh, mentally, mentally ill, perhaps, um, certainly again, after watching it and, you know, kind of reading more on the background information about her, you know, there, there were some aspects of it that were a little like grisly and gruesome where she was essentially like self-harming, uh, which is. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, she like carved holes into her hands and feet. That's very upsetting. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think, um, again, yeah, it swung really wildly because you're, I agree. I'm like, this is like serious content. This woman is maiming herself. She's having these like very intense spiritual moments where she's feeling hyper-connected to God, trying to figure out like, that relationship with God, what that looks like. And, um, then at the same token though, like it was so like funny and campy at parts. I was like, LOL. (laughs) She just stuck her hand in boiling water. (laughs) What? Um, so sometimes I feel like the kind of like campiness and tone of it sort of like took me out of some of the more serious elements of it. And so like, I enjoyed it. It's like a ride. It's a ride. You, you should watch it. It's an experience. Um, I think, you know, Paul Verhoeven is at his core a satirist, and I think that it at this film in particular, he's wanting to hit at hypocrisy. You know, the church. Um, you know, the sort of order of society in a way. Um, but honestly, I do think that it was probably one of his more unfocused, if I'm being completely frank. Uh, satirizations of something because mm-hmm. I don't think it really comes into focus until we start talking about this plague element yeah I agree but then we don't really have enough time at that point to do as much with it as we should yeah I actually thought that that last I guess it was probably half hour was like the tightest storytelling mm-hmm. where um you know her daughter the the abbess her daughter kills herself because she's so upset and incensed about the fact that um, she thinks Benedetta's lying, that, you know, she's kind of supplanted her mother and become the abbess now. And she kills herself, which again is for Catholics a, a mortal sin. You go to hell, your soul does not go to heaven. And that's like an incredibly serious and um, I, moment. And I think obviously that's the thing that propels her mother then to go on ahead and try to have Benedetta 
looked into. And then, of course, yes, this is all happening against the backdrop of a plague. So large swaths of the Italian like countryside and major cities are being infected with, um, what was the bubonic plague? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, she arrives at the city and she's trying to get their church involved and there's plague literally everywhere. Like they go over so many bodies in the streets. And of course they bring the plague with them then back to this town. And I, I think that whole thing, that series of events is super, super compelling and interesting because when she's, in the church, um, and maybe this again kind of goes to like the larger idea of satire and sort of commentary, like all of her behavior, it feels kind of like intense and a lot, but within the confines of the church, it's like, it feels like it makes sense in that world, but it almost feels cult-like once you see the way it kind of infects the town. By the time you get to the end and they're, you know, gonna burn her at the stake or whatever and the townspeople just like are so compelled and so fearful of the plague so fearful of this comet and all of these events looking so desperately for someone or something to make sense and they put so much faith into Benedetta and her visions and the idea that she can protect them somehow that they they just lose it and like yeah are attacking the guards and they go to like that main guy, the Mary Vinci from fucking, uh, the Matrix. Alfonso. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, just stab him to death in the street. Yeah. Brutally. Um, and I was just like, Oh my God. And yeah, just so overcome. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, Felicia, Felicita, yeah. uh, Charlotte Rampling also, you know, feeling almost guilty about, doubting Benedetta and bringing this yes. plague burns then also herself. burns herself yeah throws herself onto the pyre um the only person who feels kind of like grounded despite everything is the character of Benedetta's lover and you know they kind of flee momentarily to the countryside and they have a sort of like romantic moment and then she's like it's just the two of us like be honest you faked all of this stuff like just it's the two of us you can tell me the truth and that's when you really see Benedetta be like, whether you think it's like a grift or that she's unwell or that she's legit, she, it doesn't matter. She really believes it. Even if it is crazy, she mm-hmm. truly believes it. And so she leaves her there and she goes back into the town and like you see it off in the distance with smoke still rising yeah, and into the air. she hopes to be a martyr. And she hopes to be a martyr. Um, and I felt like that was like the most tight bit of storytelling for me personally, I, I felt like a little bit up into that point. It, it was a little muddied, a little kind of all over the place. But that last half hour felt like very, very compelling. And I think a big statement to your point on uh, belief, on the Catholic Church and the institution of the Catholic Church. On I think it felt very timely too. Because again, it's a time of plague and people are panicking and making and inst- like insane claims and stupid beliefs and even being violent and that feels very very appropriate and um compelling considering the particular time in which we are living right now well and it's it's also and you haven't spoken in a minute so i'll I'll let you (laughs) jump in um it's it's apparently very interesting because if i'm not mistaken he started working on this before okay covid actually happened um, but also I think that on a certain level, artists are very prescient 
Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of films that have come out that, um, you know, it came out at a time where it is relevant, but it was started before anyone was thinking about it. And yeah. I think that there are, uh, is a history of films that um, have come out and gain relevancy as time goes on. Yeah. And so I think that if this had come out probably closer to when it was supposed to, I don't know if it was supposed to come out earlier or not. Yeah. Um, people might have been like, oh, this plague shit, whatever, you know, but I think that it coming out in the midst of, of this, you know, yeah. Omicron wave three, then it, it takes on a certain, um, uh, prescience and, and, um. An eerie kind of quality. Yeah. I am so confused by her relationship <laughs> with her, her lover, um. Bartolomea. Bartolomea. It's, it's. For me, it feels so forced. It feels like two people that if they literally didn't have this attraction for each other and were apparently the only people in this covenant that did, that this relationship would have never worked. Yeah. I think that that goes to the fact that this is an inspired by and not a based on. Because if we look at the core base material, Bartolomea's claim is essentially that she was assaulted on a certain level by Benedetta, that Benedetta was the person instigating this. And I don't know, to your point, if this movie ever found a way to rectify the story it was trying to tell Mm -hmm. and the facts of the case itself. Because I think that once she, you know, gets gets tortured to tell the truth, you know, this is the the story that she tells is that, you know, uh, Benedetta has been forcing her to do these things and that it's basically been like, not at all. She, she's just been like a victim to these things where it's like, but this movie very clearly for for about half of their relationship very plainly makes it that like Bartolomea is the is the is the the doer of these things she's the, the pursuer yeah she's she's the one who's like you know you like women you like me i like you touch my titties um and so it just it feels so just to to Matt's point it feels so just like in the the male gaze of like what is this relationship actually and it's it's so distracting to a certain point because mm-hmm. it is just about the physical yeah. of their relationship i feel like we rush over all of the things that like make a relationship interesting and like yeah. make them as people like what the, what did they talk about well cuz like at the end <laughs> bartolomeo is like i love you like let's run away together and i was like bitch why why <laughs> do you love her that is crazy like this woman made you stick your hand in boiling hot water. You guys, I agree. There was, it was all very physical. At no point was I like, I see how the two of them get along. It's and tender. it's like a budding romance. Like, none of that. It was all immediately just like, let's get fucking freaky in the convent. And so, I agree. I think sometimes it kind of took me out of it because it did feel very male It felt almost like a fetid like, a fetishized version of, like, two women who are lesbians in a relationship, as opposed to, what like, what that actually looks like, which is much more nuanced and complex and involves feelings and emotions, like a normal human relationship. You got, like, none of that whatsoever. And there's also, random aside, historical note, there is nothing on record that... uh, In the trial itself, in the investigations themselves, there is nothing on record that says that they ever used 
a Virgin Jesus, Mary carved man. into a dildo. That was just um, And they make such a such a huge point about it. They like, you know, the whole carving scene and then them all searching for it. It's just it's like a huge plot point for it to literally just be like something that they threw in for like kicks you know <laughs> also i did love though that it was like in a hollowed out bible a giant hollowed out bible oh yeah Classic. no <laughs> no nobody's gonna look at no the bible there. <laughs> no to address there. some of the um the verhoven um directing of it and and some of the nature of the of the sex itself because apparently this upset quite a few people at Cannes film festival oh did it um and so i do have the quote pulled up from paul verhoven who at Cannes. Uh, received some complaints of blasphemy. Oh! Um, quote, I don't really understand how you can really blaspheme about something that happened, even in 1625. You cannot change history, you cannot change things that happen, and I based it upon the things that happened. So I think the word blasphemy, in this case, is stupid. Uh, he went on to say, uh, someone asked about, like, the 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 scene itself and he was like well you saw the movie and that was essentially all that he left it on i mean Um, do i think i mean do i think that it's like blasphemous no do i think maybe he leaned into the most like titillating pun intended like version of this relationship and did intentionally at points try to push boundaries and be a little sacrilegious maybe yeah, I do. I fucking do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's always been a button pusher. So yeah. for those who don't know, you know, we were talking about, you know, Ridley's filmography. For those who don't know, he directed RoboCop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Showgirl, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man. Um, so he's always done pretty graphic, yeah. pretty grisly, pretty in-your-face, sometimes unsubtle. Mm-hmm. Um, work. And I think also, you know, we were talking about Benedetta and you not being sure if you really understand her or know her and if this was really informative in any way. This is in a lot of ways um, sort of the antithesis of what Ridley did with The Last Duel. Mm-hmm. You know, Ridley intentionally used the notion of unreliable narration for the first two chapters, then based it in absolute truth, was very meticulous with the details. The history of it, even if it cuts a few corners, is for the most part very meticulous. Whereas um, Virginie Efira, the woman that played Benedetta, essentially said that as far as she was concerned in the book that this is based on, there's no uncertainty that Benedetta is schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that neither she nor Paul Verhoeven um, nor David Burke were wanting to necessarily go down that, that route. Yeah, and that they fair. were looking for more about making the point, whatever that point was, than, than going for absolute accuracy. I think that that's fine to not, like, lean into the schizophrenia of it to, like, make it, you know, some damnation of mental illness. I think that that's fine. But I also think that this movie is unhinged at a certain point as well. It it itself has no grounding, like, heartbeat 
Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, no, I agree. It just goes in whatever direction it feels like it needs to fit the mood. And I, I just, it just doesn't fully work. I feel like they didn't even bother making her whatever, like, if you don't want to make her accurate to the historical character, that's fine. But I feel like they didn't even necessarily make her a fully fledged character. And I think the thing that bothered me at times about it is that it felt like she was just a stand-in for, like, a modern kind of idea on this, like, past event, and less, like, a fully-fledged woman in and of herself. Like, I even think about the poster for it, you know, where it's, like, her and her, like, all-white habit, but kind of, like, showing some side titty, <laughs> and it's, like, at the core of her, this actual human woman no matter what else you think about her, like, she had these real convictions. And I think it feels a little disingenuous to just kind of, it felt like kind of focusing almost on, again, the sort of just, like, titillation of it. Um, which I don't think I enjoyed as much. You know, yeah. it, it, again, I feel like it was, like, lesbian nuns. And I don't think that really makes her a fully-fledged character or a fully-fledged person and I think I would have liked to have seen just like I guess a little bit more of her internal world you know no and actually a lot of people a lot of historians who have written on Benedetta since this book Immodest Acts um, have called into question because the the subtitle of Immodest Acts is the life of a lesbian nun in Renaissance Italy and so a lot of people have called into question the imposing of modern day thinking yeah. of lesbian you know lifestyles onto past yes. events and this particular framework in general mm -hmm. and it's led to even quite a bit of debate over um whether or not that framing was um essentially just sort of meant to to be titillating even when yeah. the book came out i think so and be evocative yeah. you know um and conversely, you know, you were talking about, like, the lack of beating heart. Even if Nomi in Showgirls is a little bit of a loony character, one, she has compassion as a person. And two, um, because of the better grounding of her relationship with Molly, mm -hmm. her best friend, which even though we never actually see them have sex or anything like that, has a very romantic, deep, warm quality to it. That entire dynamic and that entire story plays better, and Nomi sort of getting lost in the showgirl world plays better. Yeah. And so I, I don't know how they needed to ground it better, but I think that you're right. I think that it, it lacked that warmth, that heartbeat, mm -hmm. that grounding force that brought it back down. Well, and I think, too, the problem with her character is that she she feels very removed from everyone, even this woman she's supposed to be having, like, a relationship with. Mm -hmm. I don't really feel like, again, emotionally, there's any kind of, like, greater connection between them. I think... Everything, and maybe this is the point, everything and everyone she uses as a way to get closer to God. Um, and that, like, that becomes the preeminent relationship for her in her entire existence. You know, she, again, she even, like, she hurts this woman she's supposed to be in a relationship with because the father had been, like, pain, through pain, 
is how we experience God's love. And so she was trying to intentionally inflict pain on other people so they could experience God's love. Like, that's some dark shit. Well, and I think you've hit on an interesting note by saying that her preeminent relationship was with God. Yeah. And Jesus at that time, though, especially the more divine and the more direct your line to the divine, the more power you have. Yes. And so on a certain level, it is also it very, like, a very direct relationship to her being powerful and yes. power hungry, potentially. And I definitely kind of got that vibe. like With the scene with the robbers the in the beginning. The scene with the robbers. Um, and then there are just little moments like, you know, even after she gets taken in and they're, you know, she's being put on trial and everything, she wanted to be carted about the square on a donkey yeah to like recreate like them entering uh jerusalem and it like it all felt very like political stage kind of you know what i'm mm-hmm. saying like it felt a lot of it felt like a put on even like her i think like i think she she definitely faked being dead and then had left all of those like elaborate instructions and like they find her and this sort of, like, tableau of death, and then, poof, oh, man, as she, like, miraculously rises from the dead, almost Jesus-like. Yeah. I mean, it felt, it felt like, yeah, some sort of, like, weird power play. I think then I would have wanted that to be more of an intention thing. Like, I felt like that just kind of, like, happened in this movie almost. Like, I don't feel like this movie intended for us to to come to that conclusion because otherwise like I feel like the the pieces would have been a little clearer and a little neater and we would have also seen a better tran- transition of her character at, from from like beginning to middle to end and like see her truly like use these people for her own gains because out of nowhere it's just like a maybe I like girls I think I'm gonna take over the catholic church yeah no I agree I think this goes back to this idea of like there's not really like a grounding character not really like a heartbeat and I think there's like a lack of really getting any kind of sense of like her own internal world um, and her own internal, like, why is she doing this? And aside from the fact that you think that, you know, like, she really feels like she has these weird visions, you get the sense that from the time she was little, she always felt special in some way. But they don't ever really, like, plumb the depths of that in a way that feels meaningful, and I agree. And so it's like, she was in a convent surrounded by women her whole life, and, like, never seemed to have any kind of, like, inklings, and then this one girl shows up, and all of a sudden it's like, Boom, I'm a lesbian now. And then, yeah, it's like, boom, I'm an abbess. Boom, I'm going to do this whole huge thing and, like, stage my death. And, like, it just kind of feels sometimes like it just happens. And you're like, oh, shit, holy shit. No, it almost has an inverse problem for, and, like, the last duel is, like, 232, 236, something like that. But it runs like butter. It's mm-hmm. not overly long. It doesn't feel overly short. It has great pacing, great story beats, things like that. This movie is 211, and honestly, maybe it needed like 20 more minutes. Yeah. Maybe it needed 20 more minutes to just give us a few more beats, a few more moments to let us linger it felt rushed in some in of the story. It felt rushed in spots, and there were legitimately times where even though I knew, like, basically the outline of historical events, I was like, where the fuck is this going? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, and I really felt like we wasted a lot of time with all of these, like, gratuitous sex scenes yes. and, like, all yes. of these, like, just unnecessary bits of, like, 
just information thrown in to like affect Benedetta's life, but like she never felt like affected by them. And honestly, just I, I felt like I could have used less of them. I feel like I'm totally fine with with seeing nudity, with seeing sex scenes and things when it feels like it's it's going somewhere plot related. I felt like a lot of the sex scenes in this movie were just there to to be watched. It was provocative. It felt like it, he was just trying to be provocative. Yeah. Yeah, and it just we I was like we're wasting a lot of time in in this movie to have like a pause for this porno yes. and then and then we yes. get back to the plot. I agree. And it just it never felt like anything went there and it just it just why? <laughs> it gave me like season one of Game of Thrones sex position. Put a finger in her ass. Yes. Yeah. That was the entire energy for every single one of those sex scenes. Like again, there was like nothing just kind of like romantic. They didn't do just kind of like a lead up to like an erotic moment. Like it was just like so straight up like softcore porny. And it, like, one, it kind of took me out of like the overall storyline. And then two, yeah, there were too many of them. And like. And, I don't and care the, about set, show set, but like at least make sure it like serves the story. And the, honestly, out of all of them, the Virgin Mary dildo one is easily the oh my God. most unnecessary oh my God. and the most graphic. It is so graphic. And I'm not I was just one like, that's wow. typically like bothered about watching things in front of people. I sat and watched Wolf of Wall Street next to my parents. Yes. Um, so I am not one that is no. easily, like, prone to blushing, but I was like, I shouldn't be watching this with my sister. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's no, right. yeah, and honestly, like, there are so many times when, like, you'll see a sex scene in something and you never see anything, but it's still, like, evocative yes. and it's still, yes. it, it sets the mood and you understand how these people you feel. Like five whole seconds of watching that dildo go, go in, in and out. out. In and out. And this, like, it was wow. just, like... It was just it was just there because it was like shock factor. Yes. It was like, oh yeah, you know, what this time on Jackass, we're going to we're going <laughs> to watch yeah. these two ladies ladies have sex just yeah. over and over yes. again for for no reason other than like because we wanted to. And I think that that's really interesting because the the woman who plays Benedetta was like, "Oh, I don't like doing sex scenes unless I feel like it's appropriate." for the for the movie itself and I, every time it's i was like, like these scenes are just like so unnecessary. unnecessary we could have had this and we could have never seen anybody naked in the entire movie and i yeah. would have still had the same effect like yes. it's just here to be shocking correct no that's fair so uh mad if you had to rate benedetta out of five oh, um i don't know <laughs> i don't know okay i'm gonna say like if you're wanting, like, an interesting historical sort of, like, biopic, I would give it a four. If you're wanting to watch something batshit, ten out of ten. <laughs> Dear? Um, gosh. I think I'm going to give this movie a three. Okay. Like, I liked it. I liked I liked a lot of the genuine moments in it. I just felt like they got bogged down by a ho all of this like, ooh, look at this. It was like keys rattling in the camera. Yes. You know? No, I think that's fair. I think that I'll settle in the middle and I'll, I'll give it a 3.5. Um, I think that it has interesting ideas. I think it's reaching for a lot. But honestly, compared to even some of his own works that I think touch on similar ideas, tropes, themes, textures, what have you. I think that this is still him not even reaching 
uh, Paul Verhoeven's own potential <laughs> as a filmmaker. Oh, no. And so I think it's very, very good, and I really, really like it, but I, I do think that... Um, and maybe if I think on it more, I'll, I'll like it a little bit better, but I think that I'll come in the middle and, and go for a 3.5 out of 5. No, I think that that's fair. I mean, like, you were talking about showgirls earlier, and I think we saw just as many naked women in showgirls, but, it, like, it felt appropriate. It never felt exploitative. Yeah, it felt like people living their lives and, like, you were seeing people in a show that, you know, yeah, of course they're going to be naked women around. They're, like, getting... Showgirls. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It makes sense. Yeah, or this was, like, how on earth do we get these nuns naked as much as possible? Yeah. Um... But it's an interesting, I think that this was, and, and you haven't seen The Last Duel yet, and I'm definitely game to rewatch it. Um, oh, yeah. This is definitely the case of two very, very profoundly different filmmakers um, tackling history with a lot of thematic depth and richness and and places where you can falter or or, or really, really shine. And I think ultimately The Last Duel does a better job of walking that tightrope just a little bit better than Benedetta does. However, yeah. it's undoubtedly still a Paul Verhoeven movie. Yeah. And I think that that is also commendable in and of itself as well. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I agree with Matt, though. Like, if you're just in for a crazy ride, man, this is this is the movie. This is it, yeah. <laughs> Do it. Um, so I wanted to finish off the show. Um, you know, it's... As I mentioned in the in the first part of the show, we're in award season. Um, part of the reason that we're talking about some of these movies and watching some of these movies is because some of them, not all of the ones that we're talking about, are in awards contention. Um, actually, so far, I think none of the movies that we really have lined up for movies we missed in 21 are in awards contention, actually. Mm. Um, because, as I mentioned, House of Gucci is the Ridley Scott movie that's getting all the noms, not The Last Duel. Mm. Um, but... I wanted to round out, you know, I mentioned that the Globes happened, that the SAG nominations came out, that the BAFTA nominations came out, and so I just wanted to do a sort of quick run-through and get some sort of reactions from everyone on on the Globes, the, the SAGs, and the BAFTAs. So, and I know that, like, almost, I, I, I don't think that we've seen almost any of these films, but, um, so, for best... Uh, motion picture drama musical and comedy the winner for the golden globes was power of the dog for drama the new jane campion western with uh, benedict cumberbatch and uh west side story one for comedy or musical uh will smith won for uh best performance by an actor male in king richard and Nicole Kidman kind of was the big surprise winner for best actor female in a drama uh, for being the Ricardos, Ricardos. which is especially huh. interesting because one, she was a recast after yeah. Kate Blanchett dropped, Drops. and two, both she and Javier Bardem tried to back out a month before production started after the negative backlash of their casting. Interesting. So it's really interesting that she's turned around and won, especially because um, this movie has gotten kind of middling mm-hmm. reviews, I would say. I'm just I'm I'm so shocked. I'm sorry. I have to go back. Wait, who was she up against? I I'm... she was nominated against um, Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which everyone says she's great in, but that the movie is not that good. Is okay. fine. 
um, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter. I can't believe she, like, I've already, just from the trailer of that movie, I'm surprised Olivia Coleman didn't win. <laughs> Lady Gaga for House of Gucci. Mm. And uh, Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Okay. Um, so that's who wow. she was up against, but honestly, there, I, I think there's also a an argument to be made that certain people have been left out of certain categories mm. at large from well, certain films. Yes. Um, no, totally. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say this. What the hell? Will Smith, come on. <laughs> that movie should have been about the sisters, and uh, this is ridiculous. Are, I, uh, I'm are you at the... trying to tell me that it's disingenuous to do a movie about female athletes and make, and it, make about it about their dad? Their dad? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's already hard enough to be a woman, and then you're like, oh, let's make it about her dad, and let's call it King Richard, because I've ever heard of this person ever when people are referencing these people. It's absolutely I mean, bad yeah, shit. I'm gonna be completely honest. I, when I first heard the title, I was like, who the fuck is that? And like, I had to, when they were like, it's about the, like, the Williams sisters and their dad, I was like, oh, I didn't know he did stuff. When I first saw that it was called <laughs> King know, Richard, I was like, things. are we doing some sort of Shakespeare thing? Because yeah. Will Smith trying to tackle Shakespeare like, sounds what? interesting. So like, honestly, I feel like whomever else in this category of best male actor was was robbed because there is no way in hell that Will Smith just just fucking won. I'm sorry. I whatever. Well, and honestly, um, and we can talk more about snubs in a little bit, but I'm still just reeling from the fact that Dev Patel hasn't received a single nomination in any single category anywhere at all. No. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's blasphemous in itself. That's uh, the real blasphemy of the evening. That's right. No, literally. Uh, best, per- <laughs> best performance in a motion picture, musical, or comedy. Our actor male was Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. Our actor female was Rachel's, Rachel Zegler for West Side Story, um, which is fine. Um, I haven't seen Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm honestly certain that he did a great job with it. I love that two musicals won in this category. Well, two actors from two musicals won, considering it's a, it's a friggin' comedy and musical category. Um, I think I that do, that's ridiculous. I do also have to claim, first of all, bullshit on Cruella being nominated as a comedy, because I'm, it's clearly not intended to really be a comedy. I think murdering dogs to make clothes is hilarious. And also, <laughs> um... Where in the damn hell are the Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar noms? I agree. But that's, I agree. That's neither mm. here nor there, I guess. Um, best Supporting Performance in a Motion Picture. Um, best Supporting Actor Male went to Cody Smith-McPhee for Power of the Dog. I've okay. really never heard of this movie. Um, and Ariana DeBose for Best Supporting Actor Female for West Side Story okay. as Anita. Um, both of which are fine. She's apparently the big runaway from yeah. West Side. Um, and then our best director went to Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Okay. Uh, best screenplay went to Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Interesting. Um, best original score went to Hans Zimmer for Dune. Best original Zimmer. song went to That's No Time song. to Die. Oh, okay. Um, let me say this though about Hans Zimmer. The man copied himself from Muppet Treasure Island for, for Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. No, 100%. Self-plagiarist. That's uh, accurate. 100% agree with uh, that. Best animated feature went to Encanto. Yeah. Which I'm fine with. 
Um, and best non-English film went to drive my car from Japan. Okay. Um, so our nominees for the SAGs kind of run pretty similar to what we saw from the Golden Globes. Outstanding performance by a male actor in a leading role, Javier Bardem, uh, for being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, Will Smith for King Richard, and mm-hmm. Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. Outstanding performance by a female actor, uh, Jessica Chastain, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Colman, The Lost Daughter, Lady Gaga, House of Gucci, Jennifer Hudson, Respect, and Nicole Kidman being The Ricardos. Uh, outstanding performance by a male actor in a supporting role. Uh, ben Affleck, The Tender Bar. Bradley Cooper, Licorice Pizza. Troy Kotzer, Coda. Uh, Jared Leto, House of Gucci. Boof! Um, <laughs> Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog. Uh, outstanding performance by a female actor in a supporting role. Catriona Balf. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um... Uh, from Belfast, Kate Blanchett, Nightmare Alley. That's the best. That's the best nomination I've seen so far. Mm, she was perfect in that movie. Um, Ariana Debose, West Side Story, Kirsten Dunst, The Power of the Dog, and Ruth Nega, Passing. Outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture: Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, House of Gucci, King Richard. Outstanding performance by a stunt ensemble. Black Widow, Dune, The Matrix Resurrections, No Time to Die, Shang-Chi, and The Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, For television, outstanding performance by a male actor, uh, Murray Bartlett, White Lotus, Oscar Isaac, Scenes from a Marriage, Michael Keaton, Dope Sick, Ewan McGregor, uh, Halston, uh, Evan Peters, Mayor of Easttown. Female actor in a te- television show, Jennifer Coolidge, The White Lotus. Good for Jennifer I Coolidge. I love Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, Cynthia Erivo, uh, Margaret Qualley, Jean Smart, Kate Winslet. Um, so yeah, they, they pretty much fall in line with like a lot of the nominations that we've seen from the Globes. I didn't read off really any of the TV winners from the Globes. I apologize. Um, How dare you. <laughs> so th- they're all pretty similar um, yeah. in in the sags my big disappointment again is that certain movies that i think were very very well done this year like the last duel like the green knight um like barb, barb and star, star go to vista del mar very overlooked Art. um and like you're talking <laughs> about like best musical or comedy and there's really only one true comedy in my opinion, that came out this year, and it is Barb and Star. That's the only balls-out yes. comedy. And it's that. not even nominated, and I think that it is absolutely ridiculous that they put West Side Story in a com- in, in conjunction with a category that literally says comedy. That movie is a tragedy. I mean, again, yeah. we definitely talked about the fact that the, like it's like drama, or it's like musical or comedy. It's like, they're literally like, we don't really like musicals that much. We don't really like com- like comedies that much. So we're just going to put them together. Not enough musicals come yeah, out in a year for us to always exactly. do it. So instead of just putting them in the drama category, we're going to put them with comedies. Push them over here. Yeah. Honestly, they could just have it be a drama and a comedy category, like separate them, and then just decide on whether or not the musicals fit in either one. I think it's ridiculous to just lump it in with comedy like it's like stale trash or something. You're just like, oh, whatever. It's a musical. They're singing in it. It's like the miscellaneous category. Yeah. No, 
literally, which is, it, you know, maybe I'm a little personally offended because that's what I got my degree in, but like, whatever. <laughs> um, so with the BAFTAs, they long list things and then they go to a second round of voting and that becomes the things that the winners are then chosen from. Um, so I'll just read off a few. So for the first long list for best picture, we have Being the Ricardos, Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Dune, House of Gucci, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, No Time to Die, The French Dispatch, The Lost Daughter, The Power of the Dog, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Tick, Tick, Boom, West Side Story. Again, no Last Duel, no Nightmare Alley, um, just, no Green Knight, real travesty. It's sad, man. Um... Outstanding British film had the gall, however, to include The King's Man, the Kingsman prequel. <laughs> um, so, BAFTA voters, fuck you. <laughs> if you hear this, honestly, fuck you. The gall, the stones on you to put goddamn The King's Man in here, well, but they... not your own Arthurian legend. I was gonna say, How dare I'm you? Surprised they didn't have. Didn't they also have Cruella in there somewhere somehow? Yeah, Some British, uh, original British. Yes, Cruella as best how, British film. How was that? How it's it's all by the numbers of the cast and the crew and the and how so much was shot in Britain. British. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd want to claim that, but no. And also, me. like it's made by the Mouse, whose headquarters are in Burbank. I drove past them all the time. The House of Mouse. <laughs> um. So those are some of the, the BAFTA nominees. I'll let you know sort of how they get narrowed down from here. I feel like they should just take the same cast from House of Gucci, but do like House of Mouse <laughs> and make that a, a movie. I would watch that. I, no, I, why I like, not? I like where we're going with this. They're just as cartoonish. Like, That's right. I think it's kind of hilarious that they're like all of these movies that are definitely made by like Hollywood types that they're just like lumping into the British thing because they're like, oh God, what if, what if we didn't make any movies this year? Like actually... You know, it makes people like, you know, Edgar Wright, who are making, like, actually, like, I think Last UK. Night in Soho was nominated oh, yeah, for, it was. it's yes, on the long yeah. list, yeah. No, yeah, but, like, is that the only thing that was 100%, like, made in the UK this year? Um, I don't know, I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to pull back up the list. Like, it feels, it feels like, oh, you know, might as well just, like, whatever about it, you know. Oh, uh, what, do, do if I make a film... That's like fifty percent American in the UK. Do I just get to lump it in with my thing just because of the people who are working on it? Like that's that seems like it's a cheat. Yeah. No, that's fair. Um, so that's kind of the the nominations that are coming. I think that they are. I think that they are what most award nominations for me have become lately, which is a little bland, mm-hmm. a little a little plate, a little stale. Um, and also on a certain level, a little, um, a little desperate for people to notice them. Mm. Like, let's be honest, Lady Gaga, you know, probably did deserve her nominations for, um, A Star is Born. Did she deserve them for House of Gucci, which is Ryan, uh, Ridley Scott does a Ryan Murphy movie? I actually literally, up until you told me it was Ridley Scott who did it legitimately for some reason in my head kept thinking it was ryan murphy because it feels like a ryan murphy production i feel bad for not knowing Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um and so like i think that i think that they're 
uninteresting, you know? And, like, there's been all this talk about, like, oh, you know, No Way Home should be nominated for Best Picture, and I mentioned it on our Twitter. If No Way Home were to get nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, it's a direct slap in the face to at least the last 20 years' worth of genre films that have come out and have been deserving and have been looked over. Did Logan get nominated for something? No. So that, okay. Well, that makes me mad. If there was, like, a comic book movie where I was, like, that deserves an nom. It's definitely Logan. Well, and we've had some horror performances from actors that have been worthy of acting there's nominations. A, there's a Tony genre, Collette and Hereditary. There's a genre that fucking never gets nominated. The Hard anything. Fist. Oh, don't worry. They'll just lump it in with musical and comedy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. In the trash bin with everybody else. Yeah, it's kind of mm-hmm. late. There's no, like, best horror movie. Like, why? No, be- yeah. Best animation. Best, yeah, it's dumb that they do the miscellaneous grab bag category. But, like, No, no one more. of the most. Where's prolific genres one of the genres that has been around as long as film itself has been here and it's relegated to the trash bin that's correct yeah well that's why they end up having to do like their own thing yeah they do yeah no that's true them and porn well and truthfully (laughs) fair and truthfully honestly horror's happy to not have them because most people in horror look at the awards and go Oh, you want me to go and grovel and beg and do this whole like song and dance? No, thank you. I don't know. I love horror. I feel like horror it's gets a great shit genre. on a lot. I feel like it's probably though oddly one of the more subversive genres of filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of underdogs, but a lot of great shit being made. Oh yeah. No, yeah, because also it's got a lot of heart in it. Instead of things were just like because I've got a name, therefore this movie was good. Like you know, no offense if you liked Bohemian Rhapsody, but like, what in the fuck did Bohemian Rhapsody have to say about anything? Mm. Other than let's um scrub away actual history, like every time else we tell history in order yeah. to make it palatable. It, brought, for it bothered the people. me that that was like such a sanitized version. Yeah. And yeah. it would have bothered the shit out of Freddie Mercury, because yeah. that was not a man who was precious about a lot of things. No. And also, he was very proud about who he was, and the fact that you were like, what if, hear me out, he's not gay anymore, mm. is just like, ooh, <laughs> to the spirit. No, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I, I think that award season, and you know, we'll, we'll be doing more of a deep dive, especially into the Academy Awards next month. But um, honestly, this slate so far of offerings that I've been getting of what I've been seeing getting nominated for me has been pretty meh. Maybe we should make our own awards and then have winners and then just send those winners little handmade trophies. I like it. You did it. (laughs) We think you did great. You know what? I think certain people would take that more seriously. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it at least had heart in it instead of them having to be like, you know, what if I, which, which cheek do you want me to kiss so that I can win this award? We'll just do the independent film awards. I think that's already a thing. Is that a thing? I think the independent film awards are already a thing. The really, really independent (laughs) film awards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just this room. Mm-hmm. And it's like we go to like the Dollar Tree and get little trophies, and then we send them to you. Nice. And they all say like "Best Dad." Yeah. See, I was thinking okay. making them out of popsicle sticks. Oh, that works too. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Cute. All of these are good ideas. I love it. it it's it's all all of it needs is the heart. That's right. Mm-hmm. That. Miles and miles and miles of heart. heart. <laughs> um. But no, I think that that's um, I think that's pretty much all that we have for uh, today. I won't make you listen any further. And honestly, we haven't really watched terribly much other than what we've needed to for the show lately. Um, oh, we did rewatch uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So good. 
Um, delightful movie. Uh, it was Lauren's first time. Dear, real quickly, what did you think? Oh, absolutely loved it. Um, I thought that everybody did a fantastic job. Um, I thought that uh, Kate Blanchett does a phenomenal job as usual. Um, and Brad Pitt was not distractingly handsome in it the entire time, which is which no, is very always naturalized. Refreshing. Yeah, um, you know. He also had fucking looks for days. Him in the all black with the the camel colored overcoat when he comes to visit her in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, yeah. costuming. I thought, that, <laughs> I thought that it was a really like interesting look in like the the human perspective, and I loved the the idea of him, you know, like aging in reverse and how that is affecting his love life. And now, you know, that when he ends up having a child, like. In, he ends up leaving and that's it's it's you you feel how he feels in that moment because you do want him to stay but also like you know what would it be like if he if he was like a toddler you know getting getting raised by by his lover yeah yeah who's also trying to raise their child it was just a really interesting concept and i and i really enjoyed watching it i thought it was very Much well better done than the actual f scott fitzgerald like novella which i hate in <laughs> 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 case anyone wanted to know um, Mad, uh, has there been anything oh, that you've been watching, or is there anything that you want to plug, or tell people to go and look at, or, or anything like anything that? Anything I've been watching? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think about, like, shit that I watched recently. I finally finished up The Great, which was mwah, fucking phenomenal, if you aren't watching The Great. Speaking of things that are, like, very, very, very loosely based on, like, actual historical events... But is just done in such, like, a fucking wonderful way. And, again, is batshit, but, like, in an incredible fashion. And Nicholas Holt can literally do no wrong. He's incredible in that show. Um, And so is Elle Fanning. So I finished up The Great finally, which was really good. Um, Obviously, like the rest of the world, I'm trying to, like, make my way through season two of The Witcher. Because I guess, you know, there's bad guys. Henry Cavill grunts a lot. <laughs> There's that dude who does the, the singing. He's an asshole, and I like him. So you should watch that. It's confusing sometimes, and half the time I'm like, what is happening? But I, it makes my brain feel good. So watch that if you want some, you know, endorphins. Um, <laughs> what else have I been watching? Shit. A Righteous Gemstone. Oh, well, yes. Okay, so I did, yeah, I made uh, Mom and Dad watch all of season one of Righteous Gemstones, which is, again, hilarious and phenomenal and totally bad shit. And so uh, now that season two has come out, uh, I've been watching season two of The Righteous Gemstones, which, mwah, John Goodman and that shit. The whole cast of that is phenomenal. Danny McGride is such, like, a intriguing and very deeply funny, like, actor and writer. Um, and it's, like, fun for me, too, because all of its films, like, in this area, you know, the Carolinas, so, um, you know, it feels very, like, kind of, like, home turf to a certain extent. Um, all the characters feel very familiar to this part of the world, so (laughs) that's always very entertaining for me as well. Um, so I would say all of that was kind of what I've been watching recently and, um, really, really enjoyed that. And aside from that, um... I've been doing a lot of Duolingo, so if you want to learn French, probably go someplace that they speak French. Don't do Duolingo, like you. But you know, it's fun. It's a good way to waste some time. I enjoy it. I can ask where the bathroom is now. So. <laughs> Perfect. Those are my recommendations for okay. how to have a better life. 
<laughs> I like it. And in um, more cosmos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just like Ina Garden. And just like Ina Garden, more cosmos. Exactly. Well, folks, I guess that's all that we have uh, time for. I'll I'll link to Madeline's socials and stuff like that below. Um, Follow thank- for some really hot cat pics. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. I actually I had a great time in both discussions, and uh, as always, you know. Email us questions at thefilmbudspodcast uh, at gmail.com. Um, check out the website. We have a newsletter out. Um, I just put it out, and um, I actually posted the first few paragraphs of my Halloween Kills essay uh, with it. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to go and add some bonus material to our newsletter, so if you're not subscribed, go and give it a subscribe. Um... Yeah, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, and again, um, go and give us a review, and also go and tell people about us. You know, word of mouth is a great way to spread, you know, the information, get people engaged in the show. Um, So yeah, go and and tell people about us, even people that you think might not be interested. Who knows? They might find me humorous. Who knows? But Uh, only him. (laughs) (laughs) Humor is subjective. So, um, yeah, go and tell people to come and give us a listen. Um, And as always, stay safe, have a good one, and thanks for listening, you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.